Experiences of Aging. For this program, we spoke to three women from different parts of the country and with very different life histories to tell. First, Mrs. Newton, who's now living in a residential home. Well, I was born from a very poor family. There were seven of us, and my father went to school as a teacher in Wellington Road, Hanley. What date that was, it would be 1901 or two, as near as I can tell you. And there were seven of us, and uh, my mother, I'm afraid, she got into bad company. She came off a very good family in Lancashire, but she got into bad company here. So father went to school to keep seven of us in Wellington Road, Hanley. But when he brought the, his wages home in gold sovereigns, my mother was very forgetful and she'd put them down anywhere. And many a month's money has been lost that way. She was a, a, a tailoress by trade and she couldn't take to hard work. So we employed this woman to help us. My mother drank heavily and she used to go for nights and leave us. While father was at night school, my mother used to go off with this char lady to Hanley, to the Hanley Grand, and she'd leave six or seven of us to play alone. She'd put the eldest girl in charge of us, Mary. Mary had to mind us. When he came home, mother was missing. And an hour or two later, my mother used to come in and her colleague used to bring her, as bad as she was, come on, Annie, she says, Austin's here away, he's come home from school. So my dad used to say, oh, it's another night, is it? Blind, oh, she hadn't a leg to stand on. So my father had a hard life. Well, through that, we were taken away. We were scattered. My brother went to a, a boy's home and we were sent to Oxford to the nun's home, the Nazareth House. The home was called Nazareth House, Cowley Road, Oxford. And I remember it very well. And we grew up there as Catholics. And uh, I don't know where my brother went the one brother that was uh, eligible for help. John, he went to a Salvation Army home somewhere. They took him and gave him, uh, 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 trained him for work there. But uh, we never heard any more about him. So I was left with Winnie in Oxford, just the two of us. And we lived and we comforted one another. We were found a situation. I went to service. They put me into service in a place called Rudgley, Staffordshire. I R-U-G-E-L-E-Y, Rudgley. And there I was very innocent and young. I did what I was told, but I offered to put my hand to anything. I used to watch my mistress cooking. I wouldn't take my eyes off her and I was picking it up. Dr McGill Hanley. 
I went into service there, and I was a general maid. I could do service, and I could do figures, and I was also got a sprig of nursing in me. He uh, took me out of the kitchen into the surgery to do the paperwork and the patients, and I sprung off there into nursing. I knew a midwife on the district, and she used to take me out to cases, and she used to say, I'm not be well taking you out with me if you can't help me. She says, are you afraid of blood? I said, no, I'm not. Well, I did work with a nurse black on the district. She gave me work, but... (coughs) (coughs) She used to give me a bit of pocket money because I was handy. And it's there I picked up midwifery, looking at her delivering, and I used to carry her bag, and I went with her. Mrs Newton became a midwife, married, and had two children, although she carried on working and became a district nurse. She retired when she was in her 60s. After her husband died a few years ago, she went to a residential home. How was she finding living there? What keeps her going? Well, to think that I've got a daughter, Phyllis, and she's been a a source of consolation to me. Because the boy I had, Henry, the one boy, he was a caesarean section. And I was told I'd have no more. But I knew better. And uh, along came Phyllis, thank God. And uh, she's been a source of consolation. That is, Phyllis is the one thought I lived for her. When I've had a late evening, she's taken me to her house. She's taken me there till 11 and 12 and then brought me home. So I've had a good good night out, haven't I? She looked after me. She still does, Phyllis does. I don't know what I'd do without her. My son offered to take me, but Phyllis says, well, I've got my mother now and she's comfortable, but she says, don't take her away. Well, I wouldn't go. When uh, I found that I could no longer manage on my own, Phyllis said, I'll take you, ma'am. And I says, where? She says, well, the only place we can go to is here. She says, and I know Joan. Joan is the head. She says, I'll have a word with Joan and see if she can fit you in there. You can't stay alone in the bungalow because I couldn't stand love, only with a stick. And anybody could come in at night and steal what they wanted. And I was getting nervous. Here I've been very happy. I've relieved Phyllis of a lot of responsibility because I'm getting now that I can't walk only with the aid of a stick. And if I fell, I couldn't get up. So I'm best in here, aren't I? They do look after me in here. Whatever you ask for, they'll bring you. They'll do their best. They can't do more, can they? Candidly speaking, I've no fault to find but the loneliness. Loneliness. I'm lonely. When I think back, 
I've had a busy life and now it's all come crash and it's, it's there I feel it. I've mixed among a lot of people but of course there's no medicine for that. But I want to thank God that I've lived as long as I've lived. I'm satisfied with what God has provided. And I think God has been very good. When I was younger, I never thought I'd live to be this age. But I am living. Thank God, and with me being in good hands, I might live, live a bit longer. I'm more independent here. I can help myself and they leave you to do so much and they leave you to help yourself, which is a very good thing. God helps them that help themselves. Mrs Alderley still lives in the same mining village where she was born in 1907. She was one of 14 children, but only she and one sister survived infancy. Well, I suppose the last time was the short of nourishment in them days, you know, for because my mother used to go work every day and everything, and used to have to go to work to get some food and you see, because there was no work. Don't go down the miners for what they were on strike, you know, and getting nothing. Well, my mother used to go to the to the farm. Edwards is at the farm, Moss House. She used to do the washing there and do our days. Well, it was all hard work. I didn't get a chance of going anywhere at all. It was just work. The cleaning and washing. We used to have it, um, washing down the, the, where the coal is. As well. There was a, a boiler there. You have to soak it up the boil. You had to boil in there. All washing, hanging out on the line. You used to have to make a fire and dry the washing when it was wet. And, of course, they supplied this service. Take some food and give them children some. Of course, I used to go with her and that because I was there, I was all right. We got my food, we used to bring some home for my father and that. I went when I was 14 to the farm and I sat there for a number of years. Because my mother would keep coming, washing and that. We said, do the washing. Because when the, the old man was ill and there was a nurse in, Living in, we never thought he got better, but he did. He was all right. And the son, Charles Edwards, he used to go to talk school. And when he come home, you see, we had to go on the, and do so much on the land, different places, different jobs to be done. We well, lost my mother in uh, 1956, when my mother died. So, of course, I had to look after my father. So I said, well, it's no use to start to get a job somewhere. Well, the headmistress comes in. She says, do you want some work, Sally? I said, yes, if there is any going. Well, she says, I want a caretaker. So I went to the infant school caretaking. And I had to do the stoking up in the fire. Oh, forget the radiators off and everything. They used to have dances in and everything. I was coming home from school at one o'clock in the morning after the dance had finished. In her early 40s, she married a man from the same village. He'd been married before, he got two sons. 
Of course, his, his wife suffered. Of course, you know, he was always drinking. I said, I think you won't be at home with your wife. And see, two of us had died. I said, you can stop that. I said, you're not having that much drinking. He didn't. Not when he died. He was dying, he didn't. He's always been in the pit. Well, you never got for no property it was, because he used to keep his pocket money out. You can't manage with that, you say. I said, yes, well, we find out. I said, what we're paying you. He got out of his beer money. That was him. Because I got my own wages then. I got my wages from... used to pay us once a month, and I was all right then. Yes, well, you got to make with a bet, you see. Well, he says, you got your father's money. I said, listen, my father pays his way. I have his board, and that's enough. I said, I've got nothing to do with you. Well, I got my father, because it was his house, you see. But he, when he come out, or when he finished him at the pit, he, uh, he says, uh, we're going, he says, uh, you know, be careful how you open the door to anyone. We go in and see the solicitor. He says, I'm going by this house where all the money's here. So they went to the solicitor and paid for the house, and that was it. Her father was unhappy about her marriage, but she and her husband and father carried on living in the house. Some years later, her stepson, Leonard, was drowned while on holiday. I know they come down here. We're a Blackpool, Bellamy. <laughs> And there'd been an accident, that's when we lost Leonard. So I said, I think you better get up. I was, well, he says, what's up? I said, surely you've heard what's going on. I said, they can't find Leonard. That's how I put it to him. He said, so he's better get up and get going. I said, it's no good you thinking of going and drinking. But anyway, that didn't do any good. You have to kind of notice the mate. His brother come up, he says, where is he? I said, you know where he is. I said, don't ask me how I'm my belly full of him. So he says, well, he's got to go to where Leonard's drowned. Anyway, I said, you've got to get ready and go and identify that lad. What have I got to go for? I said, you're your father, I said, you damn fool. So anyway, I said, Fred and Harry are going with you. Because he was drunk when he went. Drunk as the Lord when he went. So they went and uh, identified him and everything, two particulars. So they got away like before they'd bring him home for the funeral. There was always trouble with, with him, you know. When he'd have beer and that and drinking, you couldn't sleep at night because he was singing all night. And that was him. Because I'd got my father then, so used to come singing and bawling his head off at night and sing half of the night. Wouldn't go work half his time. I, I'd got my own pension. I was older than Bill. I'd got my pension. So I got that. I said, this has got nothing to do with you. I said, I worked down hard for this. I said, it's not your business. I said, he's never paid any rent. He's never paid nothing to Fred. So uh, that was that. Oh, when my father died, the house, you see, was turned over to me. So I said, it'll be all right, the house, well, don't worry to it. I said, I can look after it and got going. Mrs Alderley's husband also died a few years ago. How is she managing now she's living on her own? Better off. 
Because yeah. I, I get so much pension from Bill because his death was caused through the pitch, you see. Well, it was just from the pitch because he'd, he'd, he'd only worked in the pit, you see. He's worked in the pit all his life. We stopped him at the pit, you see, with his health. He used to come and see him. And, of course, he'd be at the pub. My sister used to come, you see, till she was ill. I went Manchester to her and she was ill. They took her in hospital. Of course, she died there. She was eight, 80 when she died. That was the biggest blow. You see, I said, you see, she come home and, of course, he read. I said, look, you no need of come back here, Bertie. You could have stayed with me at home. I said, you don't take any notice of him. I said, I pay the rates at home. He's got no to do with them. So I said, uh, you should have stopped with me because Ebertha could never buy his, his rows and his language. It didn't suit or whatever. So then, uh, of course, I had to go to Manchester. So he says, what am I going to do? He said, he's got a tunnel to just go shop and get the things, what you want. I don't go out at night because there's so many hooligans about I used to go up to my cousins on Boone Hill and have my bath up there and have my me, me meal Fridays. So I have my dinner up there. Well, they bring me home when, any time when I was ready, he'd bring me. And they always fetch me on a Sunday. Oh, I'm all right on my own. doesn't bother me, whatever. My cousin comes down, is anything you want? and You've got phone, ring up if you want anything. I'll just do what bit of shopping there is to do. And that's that. I don't go far at all now. Well, I used to go out at night and go to the club and have a game bingo and that, and that was it. Miss Jackson was born in 1909, and after a long nursing career, she now lives on her own in Sussex. My parents were married in 1900, and we lived in Surrey. And I was the fifth of six children, four brothers and a sister. And um, my father was a GP and trained at St Bartholomew's Hospital in London. And my mother also trained there as a nurse at a time when nursing was not the sort of thing for a young lady to do. And so her father tried to divert her by taking her out to Australia to see if the Sydney Bridge and Sydney Bridge was interested in him because he was an engineer of that kind anyhow she was not diverted and she did uh, do her nursing training and met my father there and they married in 1900 our childhood I suppose was very much like anybody's at that time we had hoops and stilts and that kind of thing and we went for walks and we learned to ride bicycles. And then as we grew up, of course, we played tennis and croquet and winter dances and that kind of thing. And in 1921, I went to my first boarding school and I stayed there for two years. But then Benenden moved from its first and only term at Bickley in Kent and came down to Benenden. And then I joined then and had three lovely years which I enjoyed enormously anyhow at the end of 1927 I left 
And I spent three years doing this and that because I couldn't start my nursing training until I was 21. So first of all, I went to Switzerland and learned how to speak French in their way, which wasn't the French way at all. And I looked after two children, rather poorly, I think, and I um, did run a girl guide group. And also I enjoyed myself. I did a bit of travelling with friends and I learned to drive a car, did all the sort of things that one did do in that era. And then in 1930, I went to St. Thomas's Hospital and started my four-year training because in those days we did do four years unless you happened to be a university graduate when you did only three. University graduates were people who were not so practical, we thought, and really we felt that they should have done it the other way around. When I'd finished my training, I was asked to go back to the operating theatre as a charge nurse, or staff nurse as they're called. And then the war came, and we were all in various places sent out to the country. And I did some theatre, then I went and did an orthopaedic ward. One filled in wherever possible, and however possible, till we got back after the war from our various places. And after the war, I was then a ward sister for quite a long time, as had been arranged originally. And finally, um, I got back to the theatre and stayed there till I finished my time at St Thomas's in 1964. For most of her years as a nurse, she actually lived at the hospital. In training one lived in, there was no question of anything else. And after you trained, you also lived in, in rather better rooms, perhaps, and you moved up the scale of, of um, comfort. It wasn't until after the war that people started to live out, and only trained staff at that. Well, of course, living in hospital, it was convenient for your work, but very inconvenient for your outside life. In general... Everything was laid on for you, which made life very possible for you to do your work as well as you possibly could. But it did not fit you for living in the big wide world. You then had to think in terms of what you were going to do when you got to a certain age of retirement. And there was an opportunity when I could get a flat quite close to the hospital and I took this opportunity and when you were off duty you could shut your front door and that was that. And so you felt that you really were beginning to live a a more normal life. So what kind of adjustments had she to make when she retired? The time came when I actually fixed the date because I knew when I was 55 and that was in 1964, that I could financially manage to live in the big wide world. Because that it was a question of where one lived. And all those things had to be considered. And of course, all the time that you had been at the hospital, your finances had been coped with. 
any rise in your salary being dealt with, the tax paid and all those sort of things. Well, of course, all that came back on your lap and you had to think in terms of whether you could afford to have a house. However, uh, having decided that I was going to do that thing, I then had a holiday, having finally retired, and said to myself, well, for the moment... I will put all my furniture in store because my parents about this time had died and their house had gone. So I literally had no home of my own. And for that time, I said to myself, well, I'll have a holiday and I will look around and I'll stay with my friends and relations. And I found, I was reading the paper one day and there I saw an advertisement saying, cottage for sale interesting garden which pleased me so I wrote and said how about it and they said well come and see us so I went down the next weekend and met the people in this little cottage in Sussex quite close to the Kent border where I had been at school I moved in in 1964 and immediately felt at home I think it's made it much easier to have done a nursing career because somehow people don't mind talking to you. And also they're quite ready for you to help them. They don't think you're being nosy. And so that I found great satisfaction in having a place where I could entertain my friends and I had a lot of friends who came to see whether I could manage and also to enjoy the countryside because it is a lovely part of the world to live in. And then I found myself saying, well, I must have something to do. So Meals on Wheels came up and the disabled came up and I had a certain amount of work in London that I still could do. So there was plenty to do in life. And as time has gone on, I have had less to do because I've grown old myself. Instead of helping the elderly, I'm one of them. And the disabled I still help with. My work in London has disappeared or finished. But I find my life very full and busy because you could always do the God one thing you always have friends who come to stay and you could always be of use you hope to somebody and I think that is one of the very important things to be of some use even if it's only just taking somebody from the dentist or picking up some meat for somebody or getting a loaf of bread and that usefulness makes for satisfaction I'm very fortunate to be so mobile and to have a car and to be able to drive it still. But to be of use is the great thing. What were her thoughts about being single as she'd got older? I must say I've always been very grateful for my independent state, both when I'm working and when I'm retired. I have missed a shoulder to cry on, but equally, I have gained quite a lot from being able to come in when I want to and not being any, have anybody there and worrying about me coming in late. 
I used to go to town quite a lot and come down late in the evening and to have to get home to satisfy somebody's anxiety was not in my line. And equally, I can read with my meals, I can cook when I want to and eat what I want to and not have to consider feeding somebody else. Of course, when you do have visitors, you do have to do that, and that's a very good thing to do. You can do it. But uh, the independent state has been something that has been a great... something I suppose one's got used to. Because I can remember when I was quite young, and the sort of 20, 19, when I was 20, 20 to 30, thinking at this time I got married because all my friends were married. And that at the time, well, there was one or two flutters, but nothing that came to anything. Once one was 30, I didn't worry at all about being married. I just sat down and said, I'm not going to marry, I'm independent. But uh, you enjoyed other people's marriages because you got godchildren and you went stayed with them and you saw them their situation. So it's very difficult to balance up what you've missed with what you have gained. Independence on one side and the shoulder to cry on or somebody to help whenever they wanted when the difficulties arrived. I have seen so many widows who have no idea about rates or income tax or any of those things. And that is one of the things that one has to cope with, whether you're a widow or whether you're independent. And you have to learn it. And when you're a widow, you learn it the hard way. And it really grows on you when you're single. So that's an advantage, I suppose. From the Open University. For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.